Greetings, Shop Talkers, and welcome to Episode Zero of Global Humanist Shop Talk, Podcast Edition. I'm M.L. Clark. Episode Zero is pretty much a mission statement for this podcast, which is currently slated to run bi-weekly alongside my twice-weekly columns at OnlySky, an online platform for better storytelling about life in the secular world. Although primary content at OnlySky is written and guided by non-religiously affiliated people like me, someone who is both an atheist and a secular humanist, our readership model invites people from all cosmologies to participate in the surrounding conversation. If you haven't wandered through the site yet, I highly recommend dropping by and maybe joining us in a more constructive approach to talking about what it means to live with a time limit on our ability to be meaningful agents of change in the world. Now, this is my first time producing a podcast after many years of publishing prose, and I'll be the first to admit that I've had some jitters about the whole process. Scripted podcasts take a lot of work in planning, researching, drafting, and producing. And so all throughout the process of preparing this first season, I've been going back and forth over my choices. How do I want my humanist perspective to sound? Should it be zippy, newsy, upbeat, or meditative, serious, and understated? Do I want to make you laugh through the tough subjects? Can I make you laugh? Or am I worrying altogether too much about the bells and whistles of the whole darn thing? Eventually, though, I realized that my jitters had to do with the age-old problem of ensuring that form follows function, which is to say that I want the structure of these episodes to reinforce the arguments and ideas I'm advancing inside them. And that's not as easy as it sounds, especially in the history of atheism in mainstream media. In the process of challenging automatic allegiance to certain ideas and authorities in the spiritual realm, many secular speakers have inadvertently or inadvertently to make money and to build a measure of personal fame, created new sites of knee-jerk groupthink. Why? Because how they disseminated their arguments did not differ enough from the approach taken by preceding authorities. And so today for this introductory episode, I'm going to talk about my chosen format for this series, because this choice relates strongly to the overarching themes for both the podcast and my column at Only Sky. In particular, future episodes are going to have gradual openings that move us slowly to an assertion of the main topic. And for that reason, I want to begin by explaining why avoiding the storytelling hook is sometimes an integral part of thinking more like a humanist about the world. This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. I promise, the use of what's called a slow open is not about dragging out a mystery or catching listeners in a gimmicky gotcha halfway through the episode. After all, every episode title already tells you the episode's topic, plain as day. 
and you can always expect this podcast to reflect on a different object or concept through a humanist lens. But what does that mean exactly? A podcast with a humanist lens. Let's eliminate a few possibilities. A cornucopia of cool facts and dinner party anecdotes can be spun around just about any object or concept in the world, but plenty of wonderful podcasts already report on all those weird histories of the everyday, and they use a fantastic range of journalistic resources to uncover details never widely shared before. If you come away from these podcast episodes with a little more esoteric knowledge about any given topic, great. That's a pleasure I'm happy to provide. But I'm definitely also going to steer you toward all those seasoned journalists, researchers, and podcasters as often as I can so that you can learn way more about my chosen topics from them and just experience the sheer wealth of talent and curiosity that our species so often chooses to build upon. This choice is partly because we absolutely need to do a better job in general of deferring to relevant experts across the board, but also because, well, sharing all those weird histories and anecdotes is not itself the point of Global Humanist Shop Talk. What matters more than any given topic and its histories for me is the act of improving our ability to suspend ourselves as humanists and as simple human beings between differing points of view, to hold dissenting ideas in tension, and to learn not to take for granted that the way a given object or concept has manifested in the world is the only way it could have. By taking a few minutes to reflect on how everyday concepts shape the ability of sentient beings to make better choices for themselves and others, that's how we strengthen our practical humanism. Aha, you might be thinking, I hear a theme coming on. Well, and you'd be right. As easy as many people like to make it sound, the work of empowering ourselves and others is not easy. Not when every new generation, every new sentient being born among us has a finite educational trajectory, which will inevitably be shaped by information silos far smaller than the full sum of knowledge available. Or, in the words of Circle of Life from Disney's The Lion King, there's far too much to take in here, more to find than can ever be found. We've been trying to empower ourselves individually and in collectives of varying sizes for as long as we have been human. And before us, earlier hominin species were doing likewise, just as other species sharing this pale blue dot at this very moment are also engaged in similar work, even if on sometimes far smaller scales. But part of the problem is that the work of self and community improvement is truly never done. And when we forget that, we open ourselves up to despondency, to frustration over having to do the work over and over again at all. Therein lies the road to true despair, but only because we've set the parameters of our problem incorrectly from the start. Certainly, we humans can also lay claim to having made significant strides over our species' time span. Some of our best and most obvious successes can be seen in healthcare technologies and bodies of behavioral knowledge that have drastically transformed our life expectancies and changed our most common forms of death, even if many of those advances only come to pass through some truly horrific acts of exploitation and torture on fellow sentient beings. 
For those fortunate enough to be able to trace their family trees, and I am, I'll talk about my thoughts on genealogy on a future episode, I'm sure, you really don't have to go back very far to realize how recently it was much more common for most families to experience multiple miscarriages, infant and childhood deaths. The sheer animality of our species on full and frantic display. Also more common were deaths from now far easier to treat maladies, like a fever, or gangrene, or tooth decay. There's an apocryphal story about 20th century cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead, which first showed up in Paul Brand's 1980 Christian memoir, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, co-authored by Philip Yancey, in which Brand, or Yancey, writing for him, claims to have attended a lecture where Dr. Mead argued that we can see the start of civilization not from buildings or pottery, but from a healed broken femur in the anthropological record. If our ancestors had not thought that we were stronger when we helped one another, the story goes, and if we had not built whole networks to support caring for one another in times of great need, that person would have died of their original wound. But it's telling that this feel-good anecdote emerges in Brand's memoir in the context of differentiating between supposedly savage and civilized cultures. Because before we go resting on our laurels as a species, it bears noting that the concept of mutual care is by no means the sole provenance of human beings, nor is it necessarily found in greater abundance in the societies that this memoir wanted us to see as less savage simply because they didn't use arrows and clubs to take lives? The argument is a little wishy-washy, but it belongs to a long series of human efforts to describe what makes us so exceptional as a species or as a set of societies with similar successes, when perhaps the answer is that very little does. Formal testing on non-human animals, for instance, has shown that many species offer aid to fellow members of their species, or sometimes even other species when they're in distress. But why even lean on formal testing here to report an outcome that will come as no surprise at all to anyone who's benefited from a support animal or anyone who's ever fallen down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos where inter- and intraspecies care for a disabled or differently-aged playmate is on abundant display? Moreover, while a broken femur is easy to mark in anthropological record, there are many forms of care and mutual support that we humans have failed to provide to one another, and still fail to provide today. So perhaps we're not civilized yet, just living and working and wrestling with the facts of our existences within bigger and more intricate structures. After all, we as a species have built whole sciences and literatures and economies around rationalizing away the lower quality of life experienced by many others in our global family of 7.8 billion. Today, we have more capacity than ever to address the world's various nutritional, medical, and quality of life needs. So why haven't we? What is stopping us? The argument could also be made then that our species development has been nowhere near as comprehensive and effective as it might have been if we had made other choices along the way. If we hadn't murdered as much, or enslaved as much, or banned and burned knowledge as much. 
Furthermore, even the signs of material success that many of our cultures have produced to date have almost universally emerged from a body of unjust actions with significant long-term consequences. And one of the worst long-term consequences, climate change, now stands to undo great swaths of our work to get to this point at all. Let's put a pin on relitigating the past, though, at least until we invent a time machine. Let's think about the lessons that we can draw from it instead. One of the greatest problems with our efforts at empowerment lies with the core concept in that term, the idea of power, which has for a very long time been conflated with holding true agency. If a ruler in a gloriously affluent empire lords over a thousand lands, one might consider them to have power, but how much agency can they actually enact? If that same ruler walking among their people decides one day that they wish to end slavery in their society, how much would the system that provided them with this illusion of power actually protect them from those closest in rank and station, people who hold lesser but still highly coveted shares of illusory power and who wish to keep it? Our many histories tell us the answer, not much at all. That glorious ruler, for all their enviable access to the supposedly greatest things in life, would at best be stripped of their power as a mad or unwell person and exiled. At worst, they would be slaughtered, and a new person given absolute power in their place. Absolute power, that is, to uphold the status quo. Power can be accrued quite easily by some, but the power to give power away? That, for human beings, has never been as easy or as popular to the detriment of us all. Another problem with our efforts, one generation after another, has been our conflation of choice with agency. In his 2006 TED Talk, The Paralysis of Choice, social theory researcher Barry Schwartz argued that Western industrial societies have an official dogma that suggests the way to maximize freedom is by maximizing choice even if that choice is simply between 10 different types of extra virgin olive oil while walking through the aisles of your local supermarket. Schwartz's talk explored how an excess of everyday options often only exacerbates anxiety and depression because the sheer abundance of minor decision-making in our lives lessens our ability to clarify which choices are the most important to future thriving and leaves us dwelling over far more what-ifs when life hasn't worked out the way we had hoped. After all, if we had so many choices all along, then surely it was our fault, and ours alone, that our choices didn't yield a life that we could love. And yet, Schwartz's proposed solution to this problem, a reallocation of choice to parts of the world lacking in options, never quite satisfied me. If anything, it felt like the ethical equivalent of asking someone else to smell something putrid that's been living for too long in your fridge, just so that you won't be the only one trying not to gag on the stench. Around the time of my introduction to Schwartz's work, after all, I had read about a range of research ascribing individual satisfaction and happiness to people living in places absent the same level of choice, 
And yet, the results of those studies didn't mean that a society with rigid gender roles or lower expectations of ever having access to material goods was inherently superior. Something was missing in how we were talking about the creation of healthy societies and healthier people in them. Years later, after struggling and failing to find stability and opportunity in Canada, and after moving to Colombia to learn from an entirely different cultural discourse, I came to appreciate firsthand that what had been missing from Schwartz's proposal was the concept of agency, an ability to enact those choices that actually stand to better our lives and the lives of those around us not through access to 10 brands of extra virgin olive oil, but through living in a society, say, that prioritizes access to more nutritious and pleasurable meals for all, and that reduces the everyday shopper's complicity in various supply chain atrocities every time they venture out to feed their families. A culture where buyer beware is no longer relevant to our commercial experience because the market itself has been made more humanistic. True agency to make better choices for ourselves and others is of course nowhere near as easy to attain as the illusions of power and choice that have emerged time and again in our species' histories. But although behavioral drives have certainly played a part in limiting our ability to achieve better social outcomes, the biggest challenge before most of us is a failure of the imagination. It's certainly true that a few people now have such disproportionate wealth that they could transform whole systems if they wanted to, and without significant fear of assassination in their sleep as an age has passed. But for most of us, the path to increasing agency first requires us to reframe our understanding of power and choice entirely. The challenge, however, is a worthy one. And it's one that this podcast aims to help tackle by inviting listeners to linger for some 20 minutes every other week in that moment of recognition, that little mental flip, when something we have long since taken for granted suddenly becomes only one of many possible arrangements of society and self. Because when we as individuals and as collectives become more comfortable holding in tension other possible arrangements of the world, What we're really doing is giving ourselves permission to imagine more coherent pathways from one socio-political reality to the next. And that's where the very structure of this podcast comes into play. If you've ever read up on podcasting, especially through beginner to mid-level how-to guides about the craft of making it big on this sort of media platform, you'll soon find that most impress upon you that you have mere seconds to hook a listener's interest. Five to ten seconds, twenty seconds, five minutes max. On its surface, the existence of research on listener behaviors is all well and good but some dangerous cultural assumptions are quickly built into how many of these industry experts then handle the results. For instance, when people interpret this research to mean that the storyteller needs to be gimmicky or provocative to make those first seconds count, they are making precisely the same sort of ideological leap that this series is looking to unpack. What they're talking about, of course, is the idea of having a hook, An opening statement so striking, whether through provocation or intrigue, 
that the potential reader or listener cannot help but want to follow along to see where it takes them. But hook is such a violent term, isn't it? And its association with fishing, with hauling a helpless, panicked animal from its native environment to flop and gasp frantically in your own world for a while, care of a cruel bit of metal lodged in its cheek, doesn't exactly inspire the most collaborative way to think about storytelling. Now, as a published author primarily of short stories, I've certainly seen this cynical approach to storytelling before because it's been popular in mainstream and genre fiction for decades. Get them with your opening line or you'll never land them at all. But also as a literary scholar, I know that the story hook is a fairly recent invention and not even universally present in all of today's storytelling cultures. Moreover, what constitutes a good hook has changed along with other narrative priorities in sharp response to market pressures over time. When considering what has changed though, it's also important to reflect on what has not. And what has not changed is that the way we tell our stories shapes audience expectations. We as readers and listeners are habituated by exposure to one form of storytelling over another until one day it simply seems natural and inevitable that the best stories involve certain elements and not others. This is why some cultures are so used to four-part story structures that don't have conflict so much as change and juxtaposition, and some are used to three-part story structures packed with narrative strife. It's also why one culture doesn't bat an eye at once upon a time, and another knows that all good fairy tales begin Kena Yemen Kena, there was and there was not. And it's why some publications have a long and wonderful history of telling nuanced, gradually unspooling stories about current events, while other readers and it's why some publications have a long and wonderful history of telling nuanced, gradually unspooling stories about current events while others have readers who will be frustrated if the story's lead, that is the main point of the article, spelled L-E-D-E, isn't clear to them from line one. From a semiotic perspective, which is to say from the study of the deeper communicative meanings that exist in language and objects alike, a story written in long form generally tells the reader, this is a complex issue worth careful consideration and having a whole publication dedicated to long-form reporting tells us it's normal for issues to be complex and worthy of careful consideration. Conversely, a news story made up of straightforward, almost bullet-point statements is saying these are the hard, simple, indisputable facts about this issue. And a whole publication dedicated to such reporting tells us it's normal for issues to have hard, simple, indisputable facts. Both styles have their role, but also their dangers, especially when one style is taken for granted as the natural and correct way to share our truths. Amusingly, in journalism, the idea of the inverted pyramid which front-loads key facts at the start of the article, was formalized during a time when you literally affixed copy to a broadsheet template to send to the printers, and when you needed to be able to cut out story sections quickly to make them fit within that finite space. 
What would the standard theory of good reporting look like today, I wonder, if the modern news industry had started not with gluing text onto backboards, but with the wider organizational options available to us in the digital realm? Some aspects of modern journalism are even more recent and arbitrary, such as the very idea of 24-hour news coverage, which takes as its origin the U.S. conflict in Vietnam, and which was amplified by cable news coverage around the O.J. Simpson trial, along with the transformed cadence of all-day news on the World Wide Web. This shift not only in the temporality but also in our sense of the geographical reach of our reporting has had some troubling impacts especially when it comes to our ability to understand the scale and urgency of a given problem. In the Western industrial world, for instance, violent crime rates are down. While some could argue that white-collar, corporate-level crimes against humanity and the environment are devastatingly high. And yet, because of late-breaking news coverage, which favors the widespread dissemination of petty, personal, and violent crimes whenever and wherever they happen, public perception does not align with these broader data points. Rather, dominant news media has habituated its viewers and listeners so well to the intensity of 24-7 news cycles that significant numbers of us genuinely believe we are living in the most violent of ages with violent crime rates surging all the time right in our backyards. And this, in turn, has absolutely benefited political groups and corporations that thrive on having a wide number of constituents, voters, and general consumers convinced of imminent danger to themselves and their property. Oh, and I know, this all sounds terribly bleak. However, there's also some comfort and agency to be drawn from a fuller understanding of both journalism and storytelling histories, because what they teach us is that all of these rhetorical elements, far from being absolute and inevitable, are simply choices made in relation to specific media environments, and that we can make other choices instead. So if you choose to listen in again, and I hope you will if you've listened this far already, you'll be joining me in a smaller slice of the storytelling community that believes reframing the world requires first and foremost reframing how we tell stories about it, so that we can train ourselves out of making snap judgments about the most critical issues of our time, and learn to hold in tension more of the nuance, the complexity, and the possibilities necessary to build a better world ahead. It's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast will always set out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, First to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Cabalistic Village on SoundCloud. 
and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thank you.